Before we get into Romans 3, that's where we're going to be, Romans chapter 3, I want to talk about this word justice, because I think that justice and justification and justifying and righteousness and righteous, they're also closely tied together, and what we think about this word is so incredibly important, and there's different ways in English and I think in the original language in Greek and even with the, the Hebrew mind, the, the Jewish mind, to think about the different aspects of justice and what that word might mean or imply. One, and I think this is the one we naturally go to when we think of justice, is like criminal justice, right? When somebody does something wrong, they come before a judge and a judge says you're guilty and he punishes them because of the wrong that they did. So being punished for the crime that you commit. And so I I think that that's what we in the West, in the 21st century, we tend to think of as justice. And that certainly is justice. And that's a part of what justice is. But there's other ways that we even, even in English, use that word justice. We talk about poetic justice, right? And that's when, usually when the natural consequences of some action comes back on you, right? You don't have to go before a judge because you suffer poetic justice. I was going to put a picture up here, and I didn't, because you all probably know Wiley Coyote. But that's what I always think of, you know, Wiley Coyote. That's what I always think of when I think of poetic justice, because the coyote is always trying to get the roadrunner, and every trap that he sets, every missile that he launches, every hole that he digs, who is it that ends up in the trap? Him, right? Him. That's what almost always happens. His bomb ends up on his own head. And this is an aspect of justice that I don't think we we tend to gravitate towards or think about a whole lot, but it's actually, when you read through, especially through the Psalms and through the Proverbs, you'll, you'll find that that often this is the type of justice that, that God's people often prayed for. Let, let the bad guy fall into his own trap. Let, let his, they didn't say missile, but let his missile come back on, on him. And instead of, what, what tends to happen is that it falls on an innocent person, on the victim. But, but justice is when it comes back on that person. And justice when God is involved, even sometimes when, when the text seems to be talking about criminal justice, God is standing as a judge and he's punishing someone, a lot of times what, what ends up happening and how that criminal justice, so to speak, is actually doled out is in a poetic way, right? Somebody charges on a certain path and they won't get off of that path even though the end of that path is destruction. There's a way that seems right to a man but the end thereof is is death. And, And often when God doles out justice, it's that God allows a person to continue on the path that ends up in his own destruction. Even if he's he's setting a trap for someone else and he's trying to hurt someone else, but in the end it always comes back and destroys destroys him. So often when when we think about justice, I think this is a concept we should think about is that God allows eventually a person to suffer the consequences of their own misdeeds, their own injustice ends up coming back on them. 
And then there's another sense of justice. In fact, I don't think that this sense of justice, even if my kids don't use this word, I don't think there's a day that goes by that they don't, you know, have at least part of this concept on their tongue and in their brain. In fact, tonight at dinner, I told the boys to finish all of their dinner. And for some reason, they said, that's not fair. (laughs) I have no idea why that wouldn't be fair to finish all of your dinner, but apparently that was a miscarriage of justice right there. You know, it was grossly unjust that I would ask them to eat all of their dinner. It didn't matter that mom and I ate all of our dinner or how fair it would be for her to slave over the stove, cook dinner, and then not eat it, but that that wasn't their concern. Their concern was the injustice of making them, them eat their dinner, but that's what we we sometimes mean when we talk about justice is fairness. What's fair? What's, what's, what's good? What's the right thing to happen here? And so you'll find both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when we talk about justice, for us to always sort of put it in the category of criminal justice, like a judge doling out punishment for people that commit crimes, that, that's sometimes true. For sure, that's sometimes true. But, but sometimes that's not exactly what we're looking out, looking at. Especially when it talks about justice for the widow. Does that mean like punish all the, those bad widows that do all those bad things? Punish the orphan, right? Justice for the widow and the orphan. That, that's not what it means, right? It means fairness for them. That their plight might be ended. That they might be lifted up and helped. And, and that things might be set right. And fairness equity might happen, right? So sometimes when we talk about justice, it is a judge saying you were guilty and you deserve to be punished, but a lot of times that's not the case. It's God allowing you to suffer the consequences of your own misdeeds, or it's God having mercy on those that are broken and hurting and that need someone to to plead their case. Nobody is helping them. Injustice is being done to them. And so justice is for them to be lifted up out of the mud and them to be taken care of. It would be if the roadrunner really did get caught by the coyote, it would be, yes, for him to suffer the consequences of always trying to kill that poor roadrunner. But if the roadrunner was actually mistreated, for him to stop being mistreated and for him to be saved and elevated and mercy to be shown to him. So again, I think that we need to have all of these sort of categories and probably more than these in our mind when we think about God being a righteous God. He is just. He is fair. He helps and he has mercy, but he also has wrath towards wickedness. Why? Because it hurts people. Because it's unjust. Because people are hurting themselves and hurting each other. And and, and so God's sense of justice, God's righteousness is both towards those that are wrong and wicked and ungodly and unjust. But also he has shows justice to the widow and the orphan and the, the poor and the lame and the blind and the hungry. Isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus was full of justice. He judged with right judgment, both in chastising and admonishing the Pharisees. I mean, he had some pretty harsh words, didn't he? That was justice, but so was it justice to feed the hungry and take care of the widows and the poor and and give sight to the blind. So we said a couple weeks ago when we summarized Romans 1 that God's 
righteousness is revealed both in his deliverance, him saving mankind, and in his wrath against sin. And then when we summarized Romans chapter 2, we started specifically talking about the Jews, right? Because that's Paul's focus in this book and in so many books is the Jews and the Gentiles. And here he's writing to a mixed, ethnically mixed audience, right? And so they have different concerns and different ways of thinking about things. His ultimate desire is for them to come together and to have peace with each other. And so if he starts to begin talking about God's righteousness, that God is fair and God keeps his promises and God is just and he will lift up those that are innocent and helpless and he will bring down those who are wicked and ungodly. And so he goes through in Romans 1 and Matt talked about this verses 18 through, what is it about, verse 32. And he, he talks about God's wrath against the ungodliness and the wickedness And so the Jew might be thinking, yeah, that's right, God's judgment, God's justice, God's righteousness, God's wrath, it's all going to come down on what group of people? The Gentiles, right? All them wicked Gentiles. And then Paul sort of turns the table and he says, but but wait, listen, you who judge them, you think you're judging with right judgment, but you're guilty as well. And if God is a fair judge and God is righteous and God is just, then the Jew can't be shown any any favoritism, right? So because of God's righteousness, being Jewish will neither save you from the curse of sin nor earn you preferential treatment with God. That's what we said at the end of Romans chapter 2. Because the Jew, just like the Gentile, is also guilty of sin, then they too must stand before God's, God's judgment. And, and so if you're, if you're Jewish and you're listening to all of this, you, you might, again, we, we sort of think in religious categories and then we have like separate categories in our brain for nationalism and patriotism or whatever. If, if somebody told you that, that the citizen, I know I'm, I'm on thin ice here, but, but um, bear with me, okay? Because you, you, we got to think, we got to put it in the same categories that they would have put them in. If somebody told you that as an American citizen, you would not be treated any better in a courtroom or, you know, given any, any sort of extra blessings or benefits, you wouldn't receive any extra benefits for being a citizen than if you were a non-citizen. That both citizens and non-citizens would receive the exact same benefits, right? Then you'd say, well, then, then what good is it being a, a citizen, right? And if Paul is saying here that, listen, Jew or Gentile, if you're a Jew, you're not going to be given preferential treatment before God that both Jew and Gentile, you're both under sin, under the curse of sin. Then, then what good is it being a Jew, right? That, that's the logical question, and that's exactly what Paul guesses that they're going to be asking, right? Paul is, and all through this chapter, Paul kind of says, okay, I know you're asking this, And he sort of has this dialogue back and forth with himself. How do you suppose that Paul knew what they were asking? Because he is one, right? I mean, he knows how they think because he is one. He is a Jew. He knows how they think. This, This is his reasoning as well and always has been. But he's also dealt with Jews, right? And And Jews that hated him and wanted to kill him. Because what he's saying, this claim that he's making, that both Jew and Gentile that have faith in Jesus are descendants of Abraham? 
and heirs according to the promises that God made to Abraham? What in the world are you talking about, Paul? What kind of Messiah is is Jesus to bring Jew and Gentile together in the same family and put us all on equal standing? Is that justice? Well, we might look at that and say, well, yeah, of course that's justice. But, but they might look at it and say, but we've been mistreated for so long. And we, I mean, and God, the Messiah is supposed to come and lift us up above all of them and give us preferential treatment. And, and Paul says, this is what the Messiah is doing. And it is just. And it is Right, and so they might ask, well, then what, what benefit is it? Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Why, if we don't get anything extra, if there are no benefits to being Jewish, then what's the, what's the advantage? And then he says this, verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, I'll be honest, when I first started you know, thinking about this verse and expounding on it. I really honed in on the the word oracles. That's important, right? The oracles of God, the things that God has said over the centuries. But actually the key word here is entrusted. Entrusted. Actually the root word of the Greek word that's translated entrusted is pustuo, pustuo. Usually that word is translated something like believe or have faith entrusted who who was it that believed in or had faith in the jewish people god right god trusted you he believed in you he put his faith in you he entrusted you with his oracles he didn't reveal himself and he didn't talk to and have prophets all over the place and all of the different places he didn't treat everybody the same he picked you he chose you you were his chosen people you were supposed to be his mouthpiece to the world he revealed to you secrets that nobody else knew he gave to you promises that nobody else had he gave those to you he made a covenant with you he he married you he had an agreement with you he entrusted you with all of these oracles so is there an advantage to being of this jewish people yes in every way what a huge blessing it was to be part of the called people but but what's his overarching point here But, but, a lot of us, a lot of himself and others, we didn't, we didn't live up to what we were entrusted with. We weren't faithful when God put his faith in us, verse 3. But he says, what if, what if some were unfaithful? If they didn't live up to what was expected of them, they broke the covenant, does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Does their not being trustworthy mean that God isn't going to keep his promises? And of course, the answer is, of course not. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it's written. And then he quotes from Psalm 51. It says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And do you remember Psalm 51? You remember what the the context is or what maybe your heading says it says it's that when David sinned with with Bathsheba you remember 
And David's talking about how horrible I am. And he says, listen, I'm wicked and I'm bad and I sinned and I did what was wrong and I sinned against you. He says, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You're right to say I'm wrong. And so God, God punishing the Jewish people, God bringing justice and judgment, that's God's righteousness, right? He's, he's justified for saying you were wrong. David himself says you're justified when you say that I'm wrong because I am wrong. If a father punishes his children the same way he punishes other people that do things wrong, then he's being fair, right? I think about a baseball coach. You can always tell whose kid is the, is the coach's kid, right? Sometimes the coach treats his kid better than everybody else, and sometimes the coach treats his kid worse than everybody else. It's, it's an unusual coach who treats his kid the same as everybody else. But if the, if the Jews get off the hook for their sin, if God says, well, because you're my people, you're off the hook. I'm not going to hold you to that account. Well, then God wouldn't be just, right? But if he punishes them, it highlights God's righteousness, right? If God's judgment comes on the Jews just as it does on the Gentiles, then it highlights his righteousness. And then Paul sort of presents tongue-in-cheek a counter-argument. But if our unrighteousness, if the Jewish unrighteousness, serves to show the righteousness of God... What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a a human way. So in other words, if if me doing wrong and, and then God punishing me like everybody else, that highlights, see, God is a righteous judge. He judges both the Jew and the Gentile. And that highlights his righteousness. It's like them saying, hey, listen, we're an object lesson for the whole world. God's fair. God is just, God is righteous, God is good, God does what is equitable and right. And we're this object lesson for the whole world. Doesn't that mean we should get a little bit of, you know, a little extra? Doesn't that mean that we should get off the hook? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? If God's just going to say, okay, well, I'm not going to hold you guys accountable because you're Jewish, if your ethnicity is going to cause you to get off the hook, then on what basis is he going to judge everybody else? You, you expect, you Jewish Christian, Jewish believer, Jewish audience member that's listening to Paul, you expect God to be righteous and a righteous judge when he deals with the Gentile, but somehow you think that doesn't apply to you, and it does. All of you, all y'all, Jew and Gentile, you're all under the sin curse. You've all sinned. And, and, and if you're going to say, yes, God, be fair. Be fair. And that's what we want, don't we? We want a fair God, a just God, an equitable God. But often, it's really easy for us to say, yeah, but I want a little, a little mercy, and I want you to give all your wrath to them. No, it's not the way it works. I think about Jonah all the time. I think about Jonah. That story is just such a perfect story for capturing how easy it was for them and 
if we're honest, how easy it is for us to think, yes, I love that you're a merciful God to me, but I don't want your mercy given to them. They're nasty. They're bad. They do all kinds of horrible stuff. They don't deserve the same kind of mercy I deserve. That's the thing about mercy. None of y'all deserve it. God is equitable and fair to show mercy and grace to everybody. Don't think that you get an extra slice of the mercy and grace when you want to double down on the judgment against your neighbor. Romans 3 and verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Uh, We were God's people and we're this big object lesson for the world. Why are you still condemning us if it highlights God's righteousness? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. We'll find here and in Romans chapter 6 that some people scoffed when they they heard the gospel. Because if if this whole salvation thing, forgiveness and mercy and grace is based on faith in Jesus, and you're saying it's not based on the law, who does this Paul guy think he is? Is he saying you just go around and do whatever you want to do and you just live however you want to live and you just get away with it? He's saying all of these Gentiles, you know the stuff they've done? You know who they've slept with. You know who they've worshipped. You know what they've eaten. You know where they've been. He's saying they can come into God's family and they can be part of what we are doing and what we're going to inherit after everything that they did. Who does this Paul guy think he's, he is? He, you really think the more you sin, it just highlights God's grace? And Paul's saying, no, of course I'm not saying. You just do a lot of bad stuff so you get more grace and that makes God look even better. No, of course not. In Romans chapter 6, go on sinning so the grace may abound. By no means. The whole point of all of this for the Jew and for the Gentile is to deliver you out of, out of bondage, out of Egypt, out of exile, out of slavery, And you want that for yourself. You want the the end of the exile of the Jewish nation. You want that. Why don't you want that for your Gentile brother, your Gentile neighbor? It's just as fair for God to deliver you as it is for God to deliver them. Verses 9 through 18. A little bit longer text here. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all, Paul says, for we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If you got your Bible, like look at the footnotes there. So he's quoting, I don't know, like four or five, six different Psalms and Proverbs and just kind of tying them together. He's saying, this is everything that the Psalm says. This is everything we know is true. None of y'all, none of us, none of us is righteous. None of us is good. None of us deserves the mercy of God. 
None of us deserves to be delivered out from the hand of slavery. If you want to just talk about judgment, well, then we all deserve it. All of us. Jews deserve it. Gentiles deserve it. Everybody deserves it. Every single one of us. We're all under this curse. We're all under this bondage. We're all in exile. We're all in slavery. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is true of humanity. Both Jewish humanity and Gentile humanity, it's the same. And now we know, Paul says, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I mean, again, and he's making, I think, the same point that he made in chapter 2, do you, do you really think because you were the law bearer and the law bringer and the, the law was given specifically to you that somehow it applies less to you? You read the law and you say, this is what God's people are supposed to do and this is what God expects and this is who God is and this is how you're supposed to live and that's why all y'all are going to die. That's why God's judgment is coming on all of y'all. Wait a second. You've got it. You're breaking it too. And you're guilty too. Again, how applicable is this to all of, all of us, isn't it? It's so easy to continue to read the New Testament as if it was like Second Leviticus or something and read it in the same way. And keep reading it and say, yeah, see, all this. This is why all y'all are going to hell and I'm good and y'all are all wrong. Wait a second. If that's the way you're going to read the Bible, then not only are they in trouble, yeah, you're right. But so are you. Because everybody, you've, you've all broken it. So on that basis, no one is justified. By the law, no one is justified. The Jew isn't justified. The Gentile isn't justified. You're certainly not justified because, simply because you were the ones that had it. That, that really makes you even more accountable to it. But this point of it is to bring an awareness of it, to bring it all to a head, to bring it all to the cross, to bring it all to get dealt with, to fill up the cup so that Jesus could drink it. But on this basis of the law, none of you should walk away feeling justified on that basis. Is there a basis on which somebody can say, I am right with God. I have a right standing with God. I'm in a right relationship with God. I have confidence that I'm God's child. Yes, we'll get to that. But not on this basis. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law simply comes a knowledge of sin. Now, verses 21 and 22. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That's good news, isn't it? The righteousness of God. Now again, don't just think righteousness means God punishing people. It means his mercy and his grace and his wrath and his judgment and all of it. 
It's manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The the law and the prophets are full of testimony. God is abounding in steadfast love. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is loving. God wants to deliver you and help you. And God gives you this law to guide you and to protect you, to be, as he says in Galatians, your, your, your guardian. This law serves a purpose, but it's not on that basis that you're going to be seeing and manifested to you the righteousness of God. You don't want it to be, do you? I mean, that's his whole point to the Jew, isn't it? Stop, stop feeling like you're better than them because of your ethnicity. Stop feeling like you're better than them because you have the law. Stop feeling like you're better than them because you know the law or you've kept it a little bit better than they have. Because the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. See, through Jesus, God is showing himself to be righteous to be merciful and fair and equitable and a judge and just. All all of that, all of it packed into who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And in delivering Jew and Gentile from the bondage of sin, both Jew and Gentile, everyone who believes in Jesus, everyone who becomes a follower of Jesus, everyone, as he says in Romans chapter 6, who's buried with Jesus in baptism, you're, you're delivered from all of that, and it's fair, and it shows the world, and it shows you who God is, and how good God is, and how loving God is, and how awesome God is, and how fair God is. Stop it, Jewish believers. Stop saying, it's not fair. It's not fair they're getting what I'm getting. (laughs) Yes, it is. It is. It's the exact same thing with my kids, isn't it? I bring them both in. I give them two pieces of pie. I give them both candy, whatever it is, presents. I give them the same amount. And for one reason or another, one of them or the other one thinks they deserve a little bit more, right? And it's like, no, this is my gift, And I'm giving it to everybody. And you say, that's not fair. That's the same thing with Jonah, isn't it? Jonah's sitting up there on top of the mountain waiting for Nineveh to burn. Yes, I want your slice of pie, God. I want you to be gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But for me and my people, not for those nasty Gentiles down there. Don't you know what kind of people they are? Don't you know they're going to go right back to doing what they were doing the second I leave? Burn them. Burn them. Don't be gracious and merciful to them. They don't deserve your gifts. We do. And Paul is laying out, no, no, no. On the basis of faith in Jesus, God is giving his gifts to Jew and Gentile. And if you want to go to a system of law, and on that basis be judged, then you won't stand justified, Jew or Gentile, because everybody's guilty on that standard. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. In fact, the way that reads in the ESV is a little 
deceiving on the parts of speech because I think that grace is a, is a noun, but gift is like a or yeah, gift is like an adverb. It's like graciously. You are justified graciously as a gift. It's a gift. Jew, if you are set right with God and set free from sin, it's a gift. Gentile, if you're set free from sin and set right with God, it's a gift. No matter where you're from or what you've done or how good you've been or bad you've been or who you've been with or who you haven't been with, if you are set free from sin and set right with God, it is a what? Gift. It's a gift. It's a gracious gift and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom? Now, I could spend the rest of the time, and we only have two minutes, so apparently that's not very long, but I could spend three hours on this verse alone, but whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I think I'm going to stop here in just a minute. I want to finish my thought here, and then we'll come back and start back here next week. But that word, propitiation, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The only other time that particular Greek word that is translated propitiation there, the only other time it's found is in Hebrews. And in Hebrews, it's translated mercy seat. You know what the mercy seat was? It was the the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the blood was put in the Holy of Holies. And I have, a, I have a confession to make that I just realized tonight. I was literally eating supper. A lot of profound moments tonight at the supper table. But I was eating supper, and you can come up to me afterwards, and you can laugh in my face and say, that's the silliest thing. I can't believe you thought that. But I literally thought, until it dawned on me, and I don't know why it dawned on me, but I thought, mercy seat. That's never made any sense to me. Mercy seat. Like, who sits on it? I think chair, like a mercy chair. I thought, that doesn't make any sense. That's not the kind of seat we're talking about. It's seat like a seat of power. Like if we said Washington, D.C. is the seat of power in the United States, that kind of seat, what we mean is a specific prime location. And so when the Old Testament says that the the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat, what that means is it's it's the place of mercy. It's the place where mercy comes down. It's the place where mercy is dealt out. And isn't that what Paul is saying here? He's saying Jesus was put forward, literally exposed by God, as the place where mercy would be handed out. The Ark of the Covenant was the place where mercy was given to the people of Israel, where the blood was applied and God forgave their sins. He made atonement. It means to cover over Not because they deserve to have their sins covered over, but because that's what the sacrificial system did. That's what a loving God did. He covered over their sin for them so that they could be holy and righteous and be in a right relationship with him. And that's what Paul is saying Jesus' blood does for us, that Jesus is the place. He's the place where mercy is distributed, both to the Jew and to the Gentile, to all who have faith in his son.